Good morning. Happy New Year. Okay, so everyone be honest. Who made a New Year's resolution this year? If you made a New Year's resolution, put your hand up. Now, those of you who made a New Year's resolution, how many of you have already given up on it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Jesse? Yep, I'll be honest. So, right, like, you make a New Year's resolution, I'm not going to drink any more coffee this year. And, and how long does that last? Like 15 minutes? You get a headache and you yell at somebody and you're like, you know what, maybe I should have that coffee. I, to me, I, I stopped making resolutions a long time ago because I figured if, if something's worth making a New Year's resolution for, it's probably worth doing a few months sooner. So instead of saying, well, I want to lose a few pounds, so I've got two weeks until New Year's time to eat as much as I can. I'll just say, you know what, maybe I'll just start eating less now. But, you know, the other funny thing that we do with New Year's is we see New Year's Day as this magical reset button, if you will. If we look at New Year's Day and think, okay, I get to, I get to start all over. It's a new year. And I even hear people say things like, I hope that this year is better than last year. And even in a statement like that, we're, we're treating New Year's like it's this time to start over. But I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we realize that all the same things that we carried on December 31st are still there on January 1st. Right? Financial troubles are still very much real in 2015 as they were in 2014. Your marriage may have been in a really rough place a few weeks ago, and just because the calendar turned over didn't mean anything changed. And for some of you, last year was really great. And so you're really hoping that 2015 carries that same theme along. But for some of you, last year was really hard. Maybe you lost loved ones. You lost a job. You were diagnosed with an illness that is going to take months and months and months of treatment, or maybe there isn't any treatment for it. For some of us, last year was very, very hard. And so what do we do when the calendar turns over and yet nothing seems to have changed? What do we do when those same struggles are still here that were there last year? And so the title of this morning's message uh, is a really upbeat one. Uh, It's New Year, Same Problems. (laughs) But it's true. It's a new year, but it's the same stuff that we were dealing with last year. So what we'll see this morning is what God's Word has to say uh, about how we respond during trials and struggles. Uh, So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We'll be in verses 45 through 52 this morning. Uh, And as you finish turning there, let me go ahead and pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much that we can be here this morning. Truly, it is is, uh, the life that you have given to us that we get to enjoy today. So Lord, we say thank you for allowing us to enjoy a new year. To see another day and another Sunday and just another breath that you have given us. 
And so, Lord, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your son, Jesus, and the life eternal that we have in him. Lord, I pray for our time here this morning that, that you would just use me as your tool, as your messenger, to only speak your words this morning, Lord. Let your spirit have your way in this place this morning in our hearts. Lord, I pray for Mars Hill, Albuquerque right now. Uh, as they transition uh, and having Pastor Dave Bruscus come in uh, to lead their church, Lord, I pray for Pastor Dave uh, that you would just give him such a heart for this place and for that church and that you would lead that church uh, to also be doing your will in your way, Lord, as it is a body that loves you, Lord. And Pastor Dave is a pastor that loves you, God. I pray for them that you will continue leading them in a direction Uh, that brings you glory. And Lord, now as we come before your word, please just speak through your living word and change our lives today. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 6. I'll read through the passage and then we'll, uh, we'll walk through it together. Starting in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. To Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on land. And he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So the first thing we need to talk about and need to figure out is what's, what's the context of what's going on here? What, what just happened before they got into the boat that will kind of clue us in on some things we need to be aware of? Well, what happened right before Jesus told them to get into the boat is Jesus fed the 5,000. Now, if you're not familiar with that narrative, uh, basically what happened is this large crowd came to listen to Jesus teach. And it tells us there, there were 5,000 men plus women and children. So there are probably quite a bit more than 5,000. But the disciples came to Jesus and said, the people are really hungry. And Jesus said, okay, then give them something to eat. And the disciples were kind of like, okay, Jesus, I don't know if you see this giant crowd, but we clearly don't have enough food to feed all these people. And he said, okay, well, what do you have? And they said, we have five loaves and two fish. Which, I mean, I could eat that as a snack, so probably not anywhere near as much for a multitude of people. And so Jesus took it, it says he broke the bread, he gave thanks, and they started just passing out the food. It says that everyone had enough until they were satisfied. Not just had a taste, but they had enough until they were full. And then they went and picked up all the broken pieces, and they had 12 baskets left over. So clearly Jesus took that food and made it so much more. Made it stretch to so many more people than it could have. And the disciples witnessed this whole thing take place. So 
already they have seen quite a few miracles happen up to that point and then with that meal. And so that's where we pick up where Jesus then tells them to get into the boat. So it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So what we're going to see this morning, we're going to see four things that we need to keep in mind when we face trials and struggles. And the first is that God is sovereign over your circumstances. God is sovereign over your circumstances. Sovereign means in complete control, aware of every detail and in complete control of all of it. God is sovereign over your circumstances. Jesus is the one who told the disciples to go. He told them to get into the boat. Now, what you have to understand about Galilee at that time, well, actually, even now, the Sea of Galilee lies in a big valley that's surrounded by mountains. Okay? And what happens is the winds can pick up really quick. So it could be a clear day, and you go out on the sea, and by the time you get out a little ways, all of a sudden this storm hits that you had no idea was coming. So there's a good chance that the disciples did not know that a storm was coming. But Jesus knew. And I think that's why he told them to get into the boat. The disciples didn't know what was coming their way, but Jesus knew and he was thinking, I want you to go, I want you to endure this because I'm going to use it. And what we have to understand is there's a lot of times where we are doing exactly what God wants us to do and it gets hard. Maybe you feel like God's telling you to, to go a different direction with a new career or to go back to school or you're a young couple and you feel like he wants you to start a family and have kids or, or he wants you to adopt or, or do foster care or, or he wants you to leave your career and go into ministry or something where you feel like God's telling you to do this. And so you think, okay, God, I'm going to do it. And then it gets really, really hard. And the point is, yeah, God knew it was going to get hard. And he intended that for you for your benefit. In doing what God wanted you to do, things got difficult. Or maybe it's not something that, you know, that, that obvious of like a career change, but instead it's just daily you're walking with Jesus, you're obeying God's commands, you're seeking to know him better, and life falls apart. And you're just like, God, what's going on? I'm trying to be faithful to you. I'm trying to follow you. What, why are you letting this happen? And there's this teaching that has really plagued the American church especially lately. And it's this idea that if you follow Jesus, then you're going to prosper materially. You know, seldom do they ever mention prospering in righteousness. No, it's, you're going to get that promotion. You're going to be healthy. You're going to have that bigger house. You're going to have that nice car. Things are going to be great. And if you don't have it, it's because you don't have enough faith. It's because you don't believe in God's promises enough to be rich. And I could talk about that in a lot of detail, but we don't have time, and I'd probably end up saying something that would wind up on the internet, and I wouldn't be allowed to preach anymore. So we just won't go down that road. But suffice it to say, 
that is a hurtful teaching. That is a harmful teaching because what it does is it tells God-fearing, Jesus-following people because you're not rich, you're doing something wrong. And that's just not biblical. The fact of the matter is sometimes when we are being faithful to God is when things get hard. But God's sovereign over that and he knows it because he told us to go. But we also see that he watched their journey Verse 48 says, And he saw that they were making headway painfully. He was watching them go. You see, he told them to get into the boat, to go across the sea, and then he went up and prayed, and he watched them. He didn't just say, Well, go on. I'll see you over there. I hope you do okay. No, he was, he was keenly aware of what was going on and the struggles that they were having. And it's easy for us when we come to a place where things are difficult and where we're going through some kind of trial or struggle to think, God, you forgot me. Where are you? Do you see what's going on? Do you see what is happening to me? Why are you not doing anything? Do you even notice what's going on? And God would say, yes, I do see. I've been watching you the whole time. I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't forgotten you. You see, he's, he's sovereign over everything, and he knows what's going on. Secondly, we see that he makes his presence known when it's needed. In the second half of verse 48, it says that he, he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Okay, the fourth watch of the night is between about 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Now, you have to remember, he told them to, get on, to go across the sea the day before. That means they have likely been fighting this storm all night long. Tired, worn out, weary. How much longer is this going to go on? How much longer can we take this this isn't getting any better. Why did Jesus tell us to cross the sea? Did he know that this was going to happen? What are we going to do? I can't take this much longer. I mean, can you picture that? Fighting a storm all night long in a, in a boat on a sea? Have you been there? Where you've been dealing with something so long and you just think, how long is this going to last? How much longer do I have to deal with this? When we came out here uh, from Arizona, I remember when, when Pastor Mike called me back in, uh, it was like July of, of 2013. And we, we were uh, living in Phoenix. I was working a corporate job. And Pastor Mike called me and said, hey, I, I know that you're called to pastoral ministry and I know that you're finishing up seminary. So what would you think about being a youth pastor? And I said, I think that'd be awesome. And he said, okay, what would you think about moving out to New Mexico? And I said, no. <laughs> Since moving here, we've absolutely fallen in love with this place. Um, but my experience of Albuquerque was the fairgrounds. Nice. <laughs> All right. And so when I heard move out, come out to Albuquerque, I was like, no, I love my family. Like, I don't want to take them out. <laughs> you know, just like I, we like Arizona. It's clean. But after coming out here, it's like, no, we, we love this place. 
But I said, you know what, I'll pray about it. And Jeannie and I prayed about it, and we talked about it, and we felt like God was saying, you are going to faith. And so we listed our house and uh, started making all the provisions to move. And uh, we, we list our house. An hour after the listing goes live, we have a full price offer. And we were just like, okay, well, if you didn't believe it yet, you should believe it now. We're going to New Mexico. And then all the issues started happening. Okay. Uh, the, the buyer became very difficult. Um, the buyer's agent was very difficult. Um, issue after issue after issue coming up until two days before our house was going to close. I got a call Saturday morning. The moving truck was going to be there Monday morning. And the deal had fallen through. And we were back to square one. And I remember sitting there just like, what? This can't, this can't be. This can't be happening that God wants us to go to New Mexico. We, we sell our house the day that it lists, and yet now everything's falling apart. God, didn't you tell us to come to New Mexico? Didn't you tell us this is what you wanted us to do? And I remember so clearly, so clearly, he just, he said, do you still believe that I want you to go? Or do you think I changed my mind? And obviously me at that point, I'm like, well, okay. (laughs) But I, I, I just said, yes, I absolutely still trust you. Or I still believe that you want us to go. And the interesting thing was, God didn't say, Okay, so this is what's going to happen. You're going to relist your house, and these people are going to make you an offer, and then your house is going to sell, and everything's going to work out. He didn't do that. All he said was, then trust me. That's it. And so we trusted God, relisted our house. We moved out here with our house still on the market, and it closed about two weeks after we got here. But... The fact of the matter was, we were doing what we felt God wanted us to do and what God had clearly shown us he wanted us to do, and yet things didn't go perfectly. In fact, they got kind of difficult along the way. But when we needed his presence to be made known, he met us there. You notice that Jesus didn't call out from the shore. Hey, what are you guys doing out there? Why don't you move the sail and throw some weight off? What the heck are you doing? No, he he went out and met them. He went to them. He involved himself in their struggle. One of my professors in seminary used to always say, God doesn't leave you where he found you, but he'll meet you where you are. Whatever we're facing, God will come and meet you there, but he won't leave you there. And then Mark goes on. And he makes an interesting little side comment and then just continues on. It says, He came to them in the fourth watch of the night, walking on the sea. I'm sorry, what? He was walking on the sea. And then he just moves on. Like, yeah, it's a totally normal statement. Okay, so Mark, you're t- you mean he's like walking on a really shallow part of the water so it looked like he was walking on the sea? No, he's walking on the sea. Okay, so you mean he's like walking on top of the water 
Yeah, he was walking on the sea. Anyways, let's get back to the story. But what's interesting is when we come to passages like this, we think that's the point. Jesus was walking on water, everybody. That's our big point. Let's focus in on that. We're going to teach in Sunday school that Jesus was walking on water. and We're going to tell people about how Jesus walked on the water, and we treat it like that's the point. But like we've been talking about so many times on Sunday morning, it's not what we think the point of the passage is. It's what the author is trying to tell us is going on. And so if Jesus walking on water is just a, a footnote to Mark, it's just a side comment, there must be something pretty significant that he's trying to tell us. And so he, he reveals that in the next few verses. But what we see at the end uh, of verse 48 is that he makes his presence clear. You notice it says in, at the end of verse 48, he meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. Now I've heard some people teach this to mean that Jesus didn't want them to see him. He was like sneaking past them on the water. And they happened to see him, and he just kind of like, hey, guys. <laughs> Didn't think you'd see me walking on the water. <laughs> but let's just, let's just all agree that if someone can break the laws of physics so that they can walk on water, if they don't want to be seen, you're not going to see them. <laughs> okay? No, he meant to pass by them means he meant to be seen by them. He meant to walk out into plain sight so that they would see him. And I find it interesting, the disciples' response. It says, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. I mean, you can imagine they're sitting there fighting with the boat and one of them kind of looks over and then... There's a double take, and right, who, I'm sure it was Peter was the first one to scream that it was a ghost. But isn't that so just classic disciples? You see Jesus walking on the water, and you, you, you scream out that it's a ghost. Isn't that classic us to so often have God invade our situation and chalk it up to some kind of coincidence and not recognize that God has come to meet us in our situation. So what we see next is that, that who God is uh, should give us peace in the midst of our struggles. You see, they, they respond by freaking out and thinking it's a ghost. Which I have to imagine that it, Jesus is walking and they start screaming and he just stops and he's like, really? A ghost? It's me. But he says, he immediately spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So he says, Take heart. Don't worry. Don't fear. Trust me. Relax. It's okay. But I don't know about you, but if I'm in the middle of a storm, it's pretty difficult in that moment to relax. Right? If, if my house is burning down and I'm trying to get out of it and somebody comes up to me, you know, a firefighter comes in and is like, hey, 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 relax. 
I'm sorry, get out of my way. My house is burning down, right? I'll relax when this situation's over. So, so why should the disciples relax? Why should they take heart in this moment and not fear? Well, the next thing that Jesus says, he says, it is I. And we need to look at this a little bit because at just a quick read, we would totally miss what's going on here. But Jesus is not just saying, hey guys, it's me. That's not what he's saying. See, in John 8.58, the Pharisees are asking Jesus, um, because Jesus said something about Abraham, and he was talking about Abraham as if Jesus was with Abraham. Almost like present tense. And the Pharisees look at him and they're like, you've got to be kidding me. You're not even 40 and yet you're talking about knowing Abraham and he lived centuries ago. And Jesus' response surprised them, to say the least, because he said, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then we read that the Pharisees picked up stones to kill Jesus, because what Jesus was doing in that moment was saying, Hey everybody, I'm God. See, people say that Jesus never claimed to be God, and that's lunacy, because he claimed to be God all over the place. But that phrase, I am, if you remember back to Exodus chapter 3, when Moses comes across the burning bush, and God says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses says, okay, well, who will I tell him sent me? And God says, tell him I am has sent you. You remember that? I am was the name that God gave to his people by which to tell others, this is God. Now, when Jesus said, take heart, it is I, in this passage, he used the exact same phrase that he used in John eight fifty eight, and he used the exact same phrase that was used in the Greek Old Testament when God said, I am. Jesus isn't just saying, Hey guys, it's me. It's me. It's it's okay. It's me. Jesus was saying, "Take heart. I am God, and I'm here." That's why they could take heart, because Jesus was saying, "Hey, the God of the universe is here right now. Don't be afraid." See, I can't promise you that your situation is going to get better. I can't promise you that following Jesus is going to make life great. I can't promise you that you're going to get out of your financial troubles or that your sickness is going to be healed. I can't promise you that your marriage is going to get better right away. What I can promise you is that in that moment when you are gripped with fear, God's response will always be, take heart, I'm God and I'm here. Always. It doesn't matter what our situation is, God will always be God and God will always be here. And we can always trust Him. But thirdly, what we see is that peace comes when we let Him in. Peace comes when we let Him in. 
Notice in verse 51, the storm didn't stop until Jesus got in the boat. It says, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. The storm didn't stop until he got into the boat. See, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, trying to fix everything on your own, trying to take care of things by yourself, it's not going to cut it. Sure, you might think that you're fixing your situation, but ultimately all that we're doing when we try and do that is delaying the inevitable when all the effects of that storm finally come down on us. It's not until we let God into our situation, let Jesus invade and take over, where things finally calm down. We were, I showed a video for our, our youth group a few weeks ago, and uh, there's a, a famous uh, baseball player that was on the video, and he was talking about the more that you try to control something, the more that you try to make something happen in a game, the more that everything else is going to happen except what you want it to happen. Okay, anybody who's ever pitched knows that if you want to put a ball right in this one spot and you focus on that one spot, the ball will never go to that one spot. Ever. And he, he's, he took that and compared it to life and said, the more that you try to control your situation, the more it will get out of control. And he finished by saying, letting God take control of my life, that's when my life is truly in control. You see, it isn't until we let God come in and we say, God, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this on my own. I need you. I need you to take over, and I trust you. He may not take everything and put it all in place, but he'll at least make it so that we can respond correctly. But we have to let him in. We have to ask. Our daughter, Abigail, is, uh, she's going to be three next month, which is just crazy to say. Um, but she's going to be three next month, and one of her favorite things to do um, is to, to do puzzles. And I'm not talking like the, you know, the, there's four pieces, and it's really obvious where this piece goes, you know, because it's the only thing that's that shape. No, she like does these 30-piece jigsaw puzzles. And she has this one frozen puzzle with Elsa and Anna that... I'm just so sick of that movie by now. <laughs> but I pretend to like it because she loves it so much. But she does that puzzle like four and five times a day. And she's gotten to where she does it all by herself. If you'll just let her sit there and do it. And it's, it's crazy. But she also does these little puzzles um, like on our phone on an app. Where it's like one of those slider puzzles. You know those ones where you have like six spaces and five pieces and you got to slide them around and it turns out it turns into just you haphazardly just throwing them around until all of a sudden it randomly makes a picture and you could never do it again if your life depended on it she'll bring it to me and she'll say dad will you help me and you know I've never said no she'll bring me her puzzle and I'll solve it for her, and I'll give it back to her. And she'll just say, thanks, go on with her day. But that's how God is. That when we would come to him and say, will you help me? Dad, will you help me? He'll say yes. And he'll help. But we have to ask him. 
Implicit in Abigail asking me to help her with her puzzle is an expectation that I am going to help. If she didn't think that I was going to help her, she would never ask. Which might be revealing as to why we never ask God to help. Because we think that for some reason he won't. But that's just not true. He's a good father who cares for you as his child. And he wants to help you. But you got to let him in. You have to let him in. And lastly, we see that you have to accept it. The end of verse 51 says, And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. You see, these disciples had seen Jesus calm a storm once before with his words. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him multiply bread and fish to feed thousands of people. And they just saw him walking on water. And yet their hearts were still hardened. They didn't accept the reality of who he was. And for you, maybe you have followed Jesus. Maybe you have given him your life, but yet sometimes you think, no, I need to do this on my own. And you don't accept the reality of who God is in the midst of your situation and that you need him. Or maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. And it's time that you accept the reality of who Jesus is. You see, people have a lot to say about who Jesus is. And, oh, he was just a teacher. He was a prophet. He was a good man. Well, C.S. Lewis had a great response to that. And he said, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Because he claimed to be God. So if he claimed to be God and he's not, he's not a good man and he's not a good teacher. He's a liar. Or he's crazy. Or he really is God. And I don't know about you, but after everything that I have seen, he's God. He's God. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, I would suggest you do that now because if he is God... There is nothing more important for your life than accepting that fact. If he truly is who he said he is, there could be nothing more important than accepting that fact right now. You see, we have the communion tables out this morning. And uh, we're going to take communion together. But what I would like is, as you get the elements and go back to your seat, um, that you would consider... In what area is God asking you to trust him? Where have you not let Jesus into the boat? Where have you not acknowledged who Jesus is? And where you need to say, you're God, you're good, and I trust you.